Hi and welcome to the About Her show. I am Sangeeta Bellin, an educationist, a writer and a lifelong learner. I also run an e-magazine for women. This podcast is about trailblazing women and their journeys. Women who have broken many a barrier, many a stereotype to realize their potential. They can do it, so can you. Life is all about making choices as we go along. However, making choices requires courage and conviction which many of us may lack. Our guest this week, Nirupama Subramanian is an embodiment of someone who has fiercely made choices to follow her heart. From her early days as a banker to now being an author, leadership coach and facilitator, gender equality advocate and founder of a non-profit organization called My Daughter is Precious, Nirupama's life and the way she leads it can be a great source of inspiration for many. Let's talk to Nirupama and get inspired. Hi Nirupama and uh, welcome to this series of conversations where uh, we get women achievers who we call women trailblazers to share the stories of their lives with us, to tell us about their struggles, ups and downs, challenges, successes, so that the listeners can relate to them can get inspired by them and step out of their comfort zones and realize their potential. And uh, eventually, we want to build a powerful community of women that is there to support, empower, inspire each other. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sangeeta. And I'm so delighted to be here because what you just shared is very close to the work I do as well as my purpose, which is really to inspire, support and enable women. So very happy to be here. And thank you for thinking of me as a trailblazer and more power to you and all the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. So just as an icebreaker, tell us a little bit about your early life, your childhood, so that we can understand you a bit better. Yes, that's a long time ago, clearly. (laughs) Uh, I grew up in the 1970s, right? So it was a very different India from what it is now. It was a typical middle-class family. Uh, you know, I'm a Tamilian and I come from the Tambram community. So I think that influenced my upbringing in ways that I recognize only now. My father was in IAS. Uh, my mother was a teacher and then a professor. So, okay. uh, so we've grown up uh, in a way, I think, uh, having a lot of privileges, which I would say now, uh, mm-hmm. as well as you know, having the traditions, the norms that were uh, pretty much put on us at those days. So I grew up between Delhi and Chennai. So -hmm. I was born in Chennai, but I spent a large part of my childhood in Delhi. And in those days, moving away from where, you know, what we call your native place was a significant change. And I'm glad I had that experience. So, you know, growing up, it was just a nuclear family, my father, my mother, and I have a younger sister. And I remember it as being a time which was simple, I would say carefree to some extent, because we, I was somebody who wanted to get good grades, who wanted to get the first rank. So mm-hmm. I grew up being a good girl uh, who wanted to do well, who was fairly diligent and sincere. Uh, I loved reading, which was very much encouraged by my family. Yeah. Um, I was uh, sent to learn classical music and Bharatanatyam, which unfortunately I did not take to or excel, but I'm glad I had that experience. So it was a life based on doing well, honoring your values, um, doing what is expected out of you. Mm -hmm. And um, to some extent, I think 
uh, going along with the flow. We found joy in simple things. So I remember when I was in Delhi and uh, Nirola's, the restaurant had just opened. It was very exciting to go and have a pizza uh, in yeah. those days, right? So early 1980s, uh, uh, you know, just to have that experience of dining out was a unique thing. Uh, traveling to new places was unique. So I went to uh, my first foreign country, which was Singapore, when I was about 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like an amazing, marvelous thing, like to travel out of India and uh, yeah, go yeah. to a McDonald's. Uh, so I think finding joy in simple things, doing well, um, taking taking pleasure in, uh, you know, of course, achievement, but connection, being with family. I think all of that, uh, was what made my childhood and uh, we would have those long train journeys from Delhi to um, Madras as it was then called and uh, mm -hmm. it was such an interesting experience right so I yeah. don't know whether anybody yeah. remembers long train journeys anymore but that is a vivid memory I have um, so I think I was fortunate I think to have parents who supported me and my sister uh, to do well to think that we must have a career we can do Pretty much, I won't say whatever, we could do pretty much what we wanted. Um, and there was a lot of support and encouragement from that. And at the same time, it was a fairly simple life. So we were encouraged, I think, to go after more purposeful things rather than material things. I think that was important. Use our gifts uh, at the same time on a, you know, some of the values that we were brought up with. Okay. So I think, yeah, fairly simple childhood, you know, had a group of friends, hung out with them, did the usual uh, yes. innocent childhood things that I think uh, are so important growing up, like playing, playing badminton uh, in the lawns, sometimes also fighting with my mother. And it was so <laughs> interesting, I must tell you, I was always a writer, even as okay. a child, I used to write for these competitions and I was very um, you know, fortunate that there were those days there were these essay writing competitions and I would win prizes and short story competitions. Hmm. And the first article I published in a newspaper was at the age of 13 in Hindustan Times. Wow. And okay. that was called the Generation Gap. Oh, and okay. it was about me as a teenager, like yeah. the 13-year-old me, complaining about my mother, about <laughs> how she commented on my clothes and, you know, the fact that I didn't comb my hair well and, uh, you know, some of those kinds of things. And it was a kind of a tongue-in-cheek, you know, article about the Generation Gap. Okay. That was what I published first. And now I have a 22-year-old daughter and I am a mother. I've gone through the teens and I find still there is a little bit of a generation gap. And uh, it's very interesting to see that mother and daughter relationship. Yeah. 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 And I think you understand your mother more when you become a mother and especially, you know, a mother of a daughter. Yeah. Yes, you have the sympathies for your mother now. You <laughs> didn't when you were a teenager. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Nirupama, with this kind of a background, I'm sure it was obvious that you would have a career and you would work and become financially independent. So, uh, what made you choose banking to begin with? Yeah, that that is what I ask myself even now, considering what I'm doing now has no connection to banking. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, you know, Sagita, so I, I, I grew up thinking that there were certain things which were more acceptable and desirable than others, which included yeah. a career. Yes. So my father was in the IAS and of course there was one option was to go into the government service and write the IAS exam. But I wasn't really drawn to that. Uh, if I had honored my true 
calling and love, I would have probably done literature and psychology, which is what I end up doing now. Yeah. But uh, I had the blessing and the curse of doing quite well in academics. Okay. So I was a topper in my class 10. I did very well in my, and after class 10, there was strong pressure to take science. And, uh, but I, I really wasn't a science person. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you know, humanities was considered something not very legitimate or something that yeah, smart yeah. girls did. Mm-hmm. And I think I fell prey to that because one identity I held for myself is I'm a smart, intelligent person. And therefore I must do things that are considered smart and intelligent. Yeah. So I took BCom. I did that in my undergraduate. I did my MBA, but I did it in business management and I took finance. Okay. So because of that, it seemed logical to get into banking. And okay. in the 1990s, when I finished studying and I graduated from XLRI, foreign banks were all the rage. So mm-hmm. you felt that if you got into um, you know, a Citibank or a Greenlays or a Hong Kong, a Standard Chartered, you were pretty much set for life and it was seen as fairly aspirational. Yes, yes I remember. I think, uh, yeah, I think because I found I could do, you know, accounts and finance and because it had got a lot of validation from the world as a marker of being a successful, intelligent person, mm-hmm. it uh, nobody pressurized me. It seemed very natural and normal that I chose choose banking as a possible career. I think it also comes from ignorance that you didn't know any better at that age. And there were not as many options, right, as there are now. So I very willingly and very proudly and happily uh, got into banking uh, in those days because Citibank was day zero on campus. They recruited me. So it Mm -hmm. must mean I am a smart, intelligent, capable person. Absolutely. (laughs) Therefore, let us take it and see what the future holds for us. That's pretty much why I went into banking. And then, of course, this major transition. So from a banker, you got into writing, you got into leadership coaching, gender diversity. So there are so many hats that you wear. So how do I mean, how did it all come about? So what happened first? Did you become a leadership coach first? Did you start writing? What was it? So I think um, it didn't all happen sequentially, nor did it happen in any planned manner. Uh, It just happened. It so happened that uh, like many women, I made a lot of my career moves on the basis of my husband's moves. So after I got married, my husband was my classmate, he's my batchmate in Excel. And then, you know, he was asked by his organization to move to a couple of cities, first to Calcutta, then to Chennai, then to Delhi. So um, for me, it seemed natural that I'll ask my organization if they can move me, they move me. So as a bank, I think uh, I had no complaints. Right? It was a, if, if you had to be in a bank, you could be in any bank and Citibank was a great place to be. But after about four and a half years, I realized this is not where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. Okay. Because it wasn't honoring my gifts. Uh, I wasn't either happy doing what I was doing, nor was I very good at it. Because I realized finance was, uh, you know, it was good so far as you were studying it, but day-to-day banking was very, very different. You needed, uh, you know, a slightly different temperament, slightly different skills. And if I could see my career path in the bank, uh, I didn't think I would be able to last the entire journey. At the same time, I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, Mm -hmm. And all the jobs you get after four or five years of experience would be in the same industry. So in a way, I kind of reached an impasse where I was wondering, you know, questions like, what do I do? 
uh, what do I do next? I definitely wanted to work. I wanted a career. And I got an opportunity, you know, you call it serendipity, in a way, just luck, I suppose, that I met this uh, person who was setting up a large training and development company in India. It was called Achieve Global. Okay. And they were doing some work my husband's company. It was a very informal meeting uh, with uh, Mike, who went on to become my future boss. He said, we are looking for somebody to head up our Delhi office. Um would you like to take a chance? So they took a chance. I took a chance. No connection to banking. But it was similar in the sense I was working with corporate clients and I, it was, I had to do some selling, which is what I was doing in Citibank as well. Uh, I was a product sales manager. So I met with corporate clients and I was getting them to do business with the bank. So engaging with clients, doing the sales pitch, all of that was something which I felt I could do. Mm -hmm. And I went through a lot of assessment interviews, and then I joined Achieve Global as the general manager for uh, the entire region there. Okay. And uh, so I didn't take on a leadership coach role immediately. I took on a business role, okay. but the work we were doing was training and development. And then I got certified, and then I found I actually enjoyed the process of conducting training programs, of leading workshops. Hmm. I liked the communication, the engagement. Uh, the learning, which was very important for me. So I was learning, uh, I was learning how to sell sales training. I was delivering sales training, leadership development. So it was very, very interesting. And I was running a business. So it was also an entrepreneurial stint where I had to set up an office, find clients, build a team. Yeah. And then finally do training and development. So that is how that move happened completely mm. by chance. And then, of course, there was the other big transition point in my life, which is very similar to that of many women, as I became a mother. Hmm. And I, as I, I have a 22-year-old daughter now, and of course, after my daughter was born, I was fairly sure I would continue to work. Hmm. I believed I could have it all. Yeah. Uh, motherhood uh, is something else you want to do. I was very clear. I wanted to experience motherhood. And I think my husband and I were ready to have a child after about five years of marriage. But I guess I wasn't ready for how much of a change it would be to my life and the way I lived it. Hmm. And then my daughter fell ill. I didn't have a support system. Uh, when, you know, when she was a little baby, I was in Delhi. My family was at Daini in Chennai and they weren't able to come there to take care of her. My husband, of course, was, was supportive, but I knew he had a fairly demanding job. And, you know, at that stage in your career, work does consume you. So I said, I'll take a break for about a couple of years. I will continue to do training and mm. work on projects, but I don't want a business role in terms of heading and leading the business. So I think my boss was quite disappointed. I felt a little disappointed in myself, but I said, this is a short break. After okay. about three years or so, I definitely will come back and it will be back to business as usual. My daughter will be going to school. But it so happened that during the break that I took, I found I really enjoyed myself. Okay. I got back to writing. Writing okay. was an old love. Like I told you, I used to write yeah, yeah. You know, stories and essays in school and college, but I never did it uh, after that for close to 10 years. But after I took this break, I started writing little articles. You know, you know, the internet was opening up. There were some websites. So I got back to writing and I found I liked training and development and designing interventions more than running a business. Okay. So... Yeah, since then, I haven't had a full-time job. And then uh, after a few years of facilitation, I got my certification as a coach because 
coaching and facilitation both really work very well together in terms of helping people live their power and potential. Yeah. So I got connected to my purpose. Um, I got back to my love of writing. And I think having that space gave me the option to, I would say, honor my own values and my gifts and do what I like to do and what I'm good at doing. All right. So then how did this kind of transition into working for gender equality or for women like Glow, for instance, and even uh, My Daughter yeah. is Precious? So these are, of course, women-centric yes. um, you know, projects or initiatives. Right. So how did that happen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in a way, a lot of my life was building up to this. So yeah. My own experiences as a girl growing up, you know, where you're given some freedom, but it is still curtailed. Um, as a mother, the challenges that a new mother faces, uh, my own inhibitions and restrictions, all of that uh, was one part of it. Mm-hmm. The second part of it was in my profession. When I was a coach, when I started working with women, I noticed there were very few women in senior level positions. Mm-hmm. When I would walk into a you know top team workshop, most likely there were no women mm-hmm. or there would be one woman. And I started noticing these differences more. And when I coached the women, they would bring up issues like mom guilt, the guilt that a mother feels leaving her young child and going to work, which nobody would talk about or even honor. Or, you know, how can I be liked and respected? Yeah. Which is seems to be difficult for women because the template for the world of work is a masculine template. Absolutely. Uh, how do I fit in yet? How do I honor me, you know, my feminine self, yet I have to succeed in this masculine world. Uh, this huge thing called work-life balance took mm. its toll on women much more. The caregiver role they had to play. I started hearing all of this. I started, you know, engaging more with the world. And uh, I think two things. One is a little bit of anger. I think because I began to notice these double standards yeah, and, uh, you know, see the way women were treated. Uh, it was almost like my experience working with other women helped me to open my own eyes to what women were going through. I started reading more and uh, which is why I said, you know, the, the mixed gender programs are great. Hmm. But they don't give a safe space for women to open up and talk about concerns which we face. Yeah, yeah. So if women, if the world of work was created by women, it would look very different. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Our our, our offices would always have some kind of a child care room. Uh, We would be, period leaves would not be such a new thing. People yeah. would understand that women at a menopausal stage do go through things that men cannot even imagine. Yeah. Uh, we would have been more flexible in terms of work, but the world has been created by men for men. And there's nothing terribly wrong. I'm not, you know, I'm not somebody who blames men, but this is the system, the patriarchal system. Yeah. And yeah. that um, made me a little, you know, a little angry, a little disturbed. Um, I would, you know, suddenly I would read, open the newspaper and even till today, there's always some article about assault on women and, yeah. uh, you know, some some case where the woman's honor has been violated. So I think it made me really angry. And, you know, I think on top of that, women being called the weaker sex hmm. or being seen as not strong yeah. or not 
kept from kept from positions of power and made being made to feel powerless was you know something which angered me which disturbed me which was also against my values and i i think one of the values that i hold very deeply is um equity and justice hmm. it just didn't seem fair so then you know my co-founder aparna and i said let's let's do something about this and our idea is to have resources and spaces where women are encouraged to speak up to share to learn from each other and focus on uh, having programs and interventions that meet the needs of women so that's how glow was set up and of course now my book powerful is also about women the yes. non-profit that i run my daughter's precious is also around that Yeah, so I think yeah. now I'm seeing a convergence of all the things that I do towards the cause of I would say inclusion, diversity, with a focus on gender. So I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm able to do whatever little I can in this field because it's something I I truly believe. So see, every little thing that we do, you know, it goes towards making it big. And so I think if we can, we should, and that's a wonderful thing that you are doing you know if we just sit back and lament and you know maybe just you know criticize everything that's happening around us but don't do anything it doesn't make any sense so if we have the resources the ability i think we should do whatever we can yeah i believe that strongly i think power and privilege is seen as a blessing not as a right for anybody and then you know it becomes an obligation for us to use that with responsibility and Uh, empathy for our environment correct so tell me i mean if i have been reading your books i mean even before i knew you so very interesting you've got a bit of fiction a bit of non fiction so i mean it's very interesting because the first time i got to know that you've written powerful and i immediately went back to the books that i had read before keep the change and i said okay this this will be interesting to know how you know somebody who wrote that book which is like you know fun and frothy and frolic and you know taking a like a leaf out of our everyday lives how will she be able to write something which is powerful in that sense and which is you know like it's talking about a contemporary issue but it is a it's a non fiction and you know a serious topic so of course needless to say i was mightily impressed but then i mean how did you do it because i also write and i cannot imagine writing a you know non fiction book but uh, just tell us a little bit about yeah. this So I think that's an interesting journey. Mm-hmm. I I started off, of course, writing fiction because mm-hmm. I think I'm still a storyteller. Okay. I, I think I think it was fun. I think for me, it's not fiction or nonfiction that is important, mm-hmm. but the idea that I have in my head or a message that I want to communicate. So it's either an idea or a story or a message, and then I see. what's the best way for me to communicate that or to write it okay okay so keep the change you know if you read keep the change it's largely based on my own experiences and okay. i was at the Call phase of my life where i was writing a lot of these lighthearted fun articles you know there was a uh, economic times in those days had a column called punchline which was all humorous articles hmm. so i was writing for that so i was in a phase of life where i was writing lighter frothy stuff and uh, when it came to tell the story of keep the change which in a way is a story of a woman discovering herself yes. it's pretty much the same of a young girl except in this case she's a young girl and it's a story of her growth and transformation 
from this naive young girl to her growth story to a more mature, wise woman. Yeah. And it's told in a funny way and it happens okay. to be set in a bank in Mumbai. So I borrowed from my own surroundings, but it's really, hey, this is a story of a young girl who is discovering herself and who grows into the person. So kind of a coming of age story. Hmm. And a lighthearted, fun novel seemed to be the best way. Hmm. And, you know, keep the changes written in the form of letters. Hmm. Uh, letters that, the, you know, Damayanti writes to her yeah. pen pal. And uh, so that was the format that worked for me, that excited me. So that's the way Keep the Change went. And then, uh, I, I mean, I, I still live in Gurgaon. And Gurgaon is a very interesting place because <laughs> you're living in this condominium with people from all over the world thrown into close quarters. And, uh, and intermission happened because I was, again, observing the world around me. And it came by noticing certain things and relationships between people. And that's how intermission came. And you see intermission, the tonality is still, even though it's fiction, it's different from yes, uh, yes, Keep the Change. Yeah. And the women, and the, you know, and interestingly, when I look back, I think the women in intermission are also, you know, very interesting characters, hmm. whether it's Sweetie or Gayatri. They go through their own, you know, life changes and transitions. And it's about each of them coming to terms. And I specifically wanted to write a book where a woman who commits adultery is not stoned or killed or commits suicide. It's mm. about her taking charge of her own life and making her own choices. So in a way, there was a theme of women discovering themselves in intermission as well. And fiction and a story seemed to be the best way. Mm. And then I had a long break. I didn't write anything. In a way, I, I didn't find any idea that was exciting for me. I got caught up in work. I tried to write another third novel when I was living in Dhaka, Bangladesh, but I wasn't very happy. It didn't go anywhere. And then, I, in a way, the same thing happened with Powerful. I was coaching all these women. I was engaging with them. I became more aware of gender differences. I was writing short articles on women. I had a column called Women at Work. And again, I was noticing what was happening. And then I have this idea. Uh, which comes from, again, observation and the work that I do is that, hey, I can actually see that there are these distinct archetypes of women. And mm. what if we don't look at it as stereotypes, but as sources of power? Mm. Mm. And that was the idea. Then I felt the best way to communicate this idea is not through a novel. Yeah. It could have been a novel about uh, six women and their journey and their stories or whatever. Mm. But I was wearing my facilitator coach hat more when I was writing Powerful. Mm. So I chose to write it as a nonfiction, which was a way to talk about the model, yeah. the six feminine powers and, you know, connect to Veera, Rishika, Maab, Tanya, Apsara. And yet I wanted to write it in a very accessible way. So it's not a heavy academic book. Uh, I think a lot of people have told me it's very easy to read. Very easy. Uh, men have told me, yeah, that, you know, I thought it would, it, you know, somebody, I have somebody who was actually, uh, was on a podcast and he said, I thought this would be one boring, heavy book, but I was very surprised. I picked it up and I read it very, very quickly and it was still easy to read. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think my uh, writing fiction helped me to create that readability, accessibility even when I was writing about something serious like gender and um, helping women find out who they really are. So yeah. that's how the journey happened. 
I don't know if I have a compelling idea for a story, I might go back to fiction. Uh, yeah. If I have an idea which works best as nonfiction or a memoir or some other format, I might go for that. So I think I see the idea and the message and the thought and then the modality in a way chooses itself. So that's okay. how it happened. So looking forward to more books from you. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yes. Okay, so tell me, uh, in this journey of yours so far, these various roles and avatars that you have kind of adopted, you know, over a period of time, uh, any challenges that you have faced as an individual and because of your gender that you would like to talk about? So I would say, you know, again, as I said, I'm privileged. I have been fortunate that I've not faced any rampant discrimination. Hmm. And they have been, of course, instances of microaggressions. For example, um, you know, there was a time long ago when I was working, I went to meet a client with a male colleague. Okay. And uh, the male colleague got more attention and eye contact from the clients than me. Right? Hmm. It's, so it's it's a microaggression again, yes. where you're not aware. Or when you're taking public transport. Right? Yeah. And I've written about this in my book. When you're taking public transport, you are really very careful of people invading your private space as a woman. Hmm. And hmm. then I think the bigger challenges in retrospect, I realize, are the ones I have imposed upon myself, hmm. which is limiting myself. Uh, and in my book, I talk about these four strategies that are used to keep women from their power, which hmm. is deterrence, hmm. diminish, decorate, and divide. Hmm. And um, I think for me, living up to this, being a, this ideal woman, being a great mother, being this superwoman who does everything was a restriction that I placed on myself because of what I thought the world expected from me. Yeah, yeah. And constant messaging over many, many years made me feel it's better to stay small and safe uh, mm. rather than put yourself out, right? Rather than take big risks. And especially after I became a mother and you know, I said, why is it so much of a struggle to have it all? So to try and be a mother, you know, I feel guilty if you don't. Uh, I think those were some of the challenges that I uh, actually had to go through. And I was lucky that now I have, for me, I have designed my life in a way from a space of confidence and comfort with who I am. But that wasn't the time, uh, you know, for that wasn't the case for a long time. Hmm. I did feel unsure when I was in public spaces. I doubted myself. Um, you know, I used to feel that, you know, look at a lot of people around me, especially men were doing so much better. They seemed more confident. They had less, uh, you know, angst and anxiety about being out in the world. Hmm. I think those were some of the challenges that I went through in terms of putting huge expectations on myself hmm. and then blaming myself for not living up to those expectations. Yeah, yeah. like a lot of so, us, yes. Which, which now I see, which you know, resonates with a lot of women like us, and I would say we are probably a small minority who uh, are, you know, we are lucky enough to have power and resources and a certain status in society. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at some of the young girls from underserved families whom we work with in my daughter's precious, uh, there is still huge discrimination that the girls do face. Yes, um, there is a lot of self-doubt and diminishment which uh, they experience. 
and I think even at even as in my daughter's generation, you'd think the younger generation so privileged, you have everything, and she shared interestingly that when it came to elections in school for you know being the head, there were very few girls who put up their hand. So the entire committee of, you know, the senior leadership committee was usually predominantly boys because boys would put up their hands and stand for these elections as compared to girls, which I found so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, which is why, of course, led to that. Yeah. But if you look at uh, the outside world, women face, do still face a lot of challenges. They do. As I said, now my life is designed so that I pretty much am the queen of my own time and energy and resources and I've reached a space where uh, I don't think I face any kind of blatant discrimination mm. but as a young woman stepping out into the world yes I did face that in my early years in the bank looking at all these a lot of um, alpha male people around me and wondering whether I would ever make it to that stage I saw very few women role models who had reached senior levels there was some self-doubt and you know, questioning myself at that point of time, which yeah. I think were challenges and the role expectations that you have, good daughter, daughter-in-law, you know, yeah. take care of the home, run it well, just um, leaves you exhausted sometimes yeah. to do other things. So which brings me to my next question. How do you balance all these various roles, the multiple hats that you wear? So I would say, and now, you know, I have uh, I have a grown-up daughter, right? So there's one big part of my life, which is caregiver as a mother role, which I'm not actively playing. My daughter's starting work in San Francisco. I am very lucky. I think she's, uh, at least she's independent. She's able to make a lot of decisions, apart from being there with her own phone. Um, you know, not much is asked of me. Yeah. I'm a remote caregiver to my mother and my in-laws, but it's not like I have to do that on a daily basis. So compared to a lot of women, I think touch wood, I actually, um, I have a, I have it easy. Yeah. I have, uh, so, but I think three things are important for any woman. And I think including me to, you know, to achieve this, this so-called thing called balance. Mm-hmm. I think the first is very importantly, clarity. Yeah. Which is, you know, where do you want to spend your time and energy? Absolutely. And it's perfectly okay if you want to spend your time and energy cooking nourishing meals for your family and that gives you happiness. That's the best use of your talent. Which that is what you should be doing. So yeah. clarity on where you want to spend your time, energy and clarity on your mission and purpose is very important. Yeah. If you don't have clarity, you're constantly at the beck and call of somebody else's demands and then you end up squandering you know whatever time you wanted to do any other things so first have that clarity about what do I really want to do and what is really important for me yeah what gives me joy and satisfaction where can I make a contribution and then the second is priority yeah prioritize that right yeah I might have 10 things that emerge as important but what are my priorities in that yeah so and are those priorities really my priorities or is it something which is imposed on by somebody else on mm. me? Mm. Right? Mm. So have that clarity on what are my priorities. So I'm fairly clear uh, that my my priority when my daughter was young mm. was being a mother. Yeah. That is not my priority and energy consumer right now. Right now it's my contribution and it's my cause. Um, let's say 
um, home decor is not my priority. Mm-hmm. I, I set up my home and it's been pretty much the same for seven years. I don't do home improvement. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, that's not a priority. But for somebody else, that could give them a lot of joy. Yeah, right? yeah. So I have to decide this is my priority. So clarity, priority. And the third thing I would say is uh, delegation yeah, and yeah. outsourcing. Right. A lot of women believe that they have to do everything themselves and then they take it upon themselves and then they get obviously very tired and exhausted because you can't. You can't. So delegation, yes, that too is very important. Right. To give away some of the work that you can give to others, for example, enlist your spouse to do certain things with the kids. Hmm. So and, and it's a great way for them to be involved as a part of the parenting and, you know, grow up as well. Uh, so I know I know many working women also, of course, have help in terms of nannies or having somebody else to take care of your child. And that's perfectly OK. Uh, I think it's we ourselves who put this huge guilt saying that we can't as long you know that, you know, we are not being good mothers, hmm. but hmm. we are doing it. We are sending our children to school, which in a way we are delegating and outsourcing their education to somebody else. Yeah. So I think that is important. And along with Del and part of delegation is also asking for help, uh, which is don't do everything on your own and reach out to people and ask for help. And, you know, I had to do that sometimes when my husband and I were both had to travel for work. Mm -hmm. I had to call a friend and say, can my daughter stay over at your place? Because we both are not going to you know, be there. And mm. I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I can't leave her alone in the house. So yeah, yeah. asking for asking for help from your neighbors, from parents of your kids, friends um, at work, asking for help from your colleagues without believing I have to do it all on my own. So delegation, outsourcing, asking for help are all strategies that will help us to focus on what gives us joy, what is important and where we really want to spend our energy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think that is the way for us to achieve this this thing called balance. And yeah. I'll say you'll never have perfect balance on a day. Yeah, yeah. It could be that you know, on one day you are working nine to nine. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm traveling for six days on work. Mm. But then how do I, if I feel an imbalance, how do I correct that? Yes. So, yeah. you know, when we do coaching, we do a very interesting exercise called the wheel of life, where okay. you look at balance in terms of different aspects of your life rather than at a time Hmm. my physical you know my health my um, health and well-being my relationships my work maybe spirituality uh, leisure relationships or friendships do I have balance in all the areas of my life which I think are important and then if you find that is an imbalance then we can fix it to say hey I really need to focus on my health because I'm making a lot of money. My finance is fine, but health is something which is suffering. So let me focus on my health. So I think that's the lens of balance that I use. And that is what helps me to prioritize, get clarity, and of course, delegate, outsource, and get help. Great, great. So when you look back on your life, what would Mm -hmm. be... What would you say has been your biggest accomplishment? I mean, it could be personal, it could be professional. I mean, your growth as an individual, it could be anything. But what would you think would be your biggest accomplishment? Hmm. So I think it's right now, 
Mm -hmm. I think I, I would say my accomplishment or success, as I would call it, is designing and living the life that I want on my terms. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is what I think has been my success. And when I look back, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I'm able to do all that I want to do, mm -hmm. which is I, I have an identity as an author and a writer. And I'm very yeah. glad I did that early on in my life. I'm very glad I can do the work of coaching and leadership development and workshops, which is what I really like. Hmm. I'm very glad that I'm able to contribute to the world through my daughter's is precious. Hmm. Touch wood, uh, in my 50s, I think I have reasonably good, reasonably good health and okay. uh, I'm able to take time for my exercise. I, I started running only after I crossed 50, so I'm able to do that. And I have relationships, which are my close relationships with my family um, and some friends who I can, uh, I enjoy being with and hanging up with. So yeah. I think for me, success is ooh, designing and living the kind of life that I want as of today. I might feel some discontent later on and I might decide to do something totally different. Yeah. There are some yeah. things that, would, yeah. I mean, I would still like to do uh you know, I want to go for some a meditation retreat, which I've been planning for a long time. So there are these little things which I would still love to do, travel to South America and experience a culture. Uh, so do some of those things which would just add to the quality of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, but at this stage, I think I, I'm glad I made the decisions that I made, even mm -hmm. though at that moment, they were not the easiest ones to do. Yeah. Because it's yeah. taken me it's taken me to this this place yeah. where I have, I would say, a decent amount of comfort, acceptance, and happiness with uh, where I am right now. So great place to be in. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good place to be in. Yes. I think I also I always have this little thing, uh, you know, which is, can it be better? Can it be more? Uh, that's a question I do, you know, have popping up from time to time. But all mm -hmm. in all, um, you know, every day I have a gratitude practice and uh, I'm glad that I have many things to be grateful for. Yeah. And uh, and I think the sense of living my purpose yeah, is what huge. really that's, adds to that's... my feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. Okay. So are there days when you're down and out and you just want to maybe, you know, curl up on the sofa with a yeah. you know, cup of coffee and don't want to do anything? So then how so, do you... How do you get out of those blue blues, so to say? And what do you do to motivate yourself? So I think it's very normal. All of us have those days. And sometimes I can even say, what am I? I have days when I'm like, what am I doing? Hmm. Right? Is this, I know it's a day where I've been doing maybe a lot of administrative activities and, you know, maybe dealing with difficult clients or having unforeseen changes or there could be days when I'm, I'm feeling truly stuck at something which is not moving or uh, I'm suddenly feeling lost and insignificant that, oh, I thought I've done great things, but actually it accounts to amounts to nothing much. So, of course, those days are there. Um, I think the only way ahead is to go through. Right? Yeah. So you have to get, get through it. Mm -hmm. And what helps, as I said, what helps is, again, having a clear sense of a larger goal or a purpose. Yeah. Having a good support system. Definitely. Which is somebody 
you know, somebody I can tell, or I can at least complain to my husband, or I, I call some friend and say, you know, I'm feeling like this today, or, you know, a couple of people who will, uh, you know, who I know are quite cheerful and have positive energy, uh, reading a book, watching something silly and mindless on, you know, Netflix or something, mm-hmm. listening to good music, that helps me to come back. So I think uh, focusing on the bigger picture, yeah, which is, you know, being really looking at the positives and everything that is there in my life apart from just this, yeah, I think is, is one thing which is very helpful. Uh, the other is connecting to the larger purpose hmm. and uh, telling yourself this is this is going to pass. Yes. This, is one thing. Uh, this too shall pass. Like you're in a low mode, it's okay. Hmm. I want to just watch a movie and eat ice cream. Mm-hmm. Let me not judge myself for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think sometimes I have this bad habit, and my my you know daughter always calls me out on this. Like after I've eaten ice cream, I'm like, oh God, why did I do it? Why did I spend two hours just watching a movie and eating ice cream? Like, <laughs> really stupid. I mean, you wanted this. It, you needed it. You did it. Might as well enjoy it rather than judge yourself for that. So I think. Often it's a call for me to be less hard and less critical of myself. And uh, I think one of the qualities I have is being quite adaptable and resilient. So okay. for me, I, I'm not a brooder. Um, you know, I, I bounce back. I process things in my head. I am a natural optimist who sees usually the positive side and the best of everything. And that's, I think, a gift that I have. And that helps me to become more resilient as well. In fact, when I do, I do actually workshops on resilience and how to bounce back and, you know, they quickly for things that actually help our sense of purposefulness, self-confidence, support system and adaptability. Okay. So I think that is really helpful. So being confident about who I am and not taking everything personally as if things have gone wrong, not taking it as a personal judgment on how terrible I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still do that, but not taking the whole load on myself. And keep connecting to the purpose and then finding joy in little things and adapting with that, I think, is is very helpful. That, I think, is. You're right. Okay. So, any uh, particular lessons that life has taught you which you would like to share with us so that we can also maybe take a leaf out of your book or something, you know? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's what I have, you know, in a way tried to put in my book, Powerful, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'll share, you know, I think three things which I, you know, I actually wrote something about this as advice to my daughter who's starting her working life. But I think it holds true for everybody else. Mm-hmm. I think I would say, you know, first is really own your power, mm-hmm. uh, which is recognize all the amazing good strengths that we have. And I'd say this is especially for women because we tend to become too critical. Mm-hmm. holding your power and never letting what the world says about you to you stand in the way of you living your power mm-hmm. and I think I have to keep reminding myself and that I do as a morning affirmation that I am great I am powerful I have done some of these things so I think owning your power second I would say be being open and curious mm-hmm. um I think the moment we get complacent, the moment we think we know everything or we have all the answers, the universe will give us a slap or another lesson. Mm. Being open and curious about the world, about other people, reserving judgment, giving people and yourself the benefit of doubt, 
And uh, I think that for me has worked. And I'm also, you know, in the six feminine powers, I'm a Kondeshika, who's the seeker. So okay. for me, being open and curious comes naturally. I like to know about things. And I think that's that's a great quality for all of us to hold. Yeah, being curious yeah. instead of judgmental, being open instead of uh, closed. And I would say the third thing to do is really dreaming big. Hmm, hmm. So we, as we dream more, we also grow more. So, yeah. you know, for me, I could have said, hey, I've written, I've written a book, that's enough. Hmm. And I said, okay, I'll write another book. Yeah. And when I wrote Powerful, I was like, oh, I've written a book that's pretty cool. But I said, maybe I can dream bigger and say, it's not just a book, but can I create an assessment tool, a psychometric assessment tool, hmm. uh, which I can offer to women as a doorway for them to know and understand themselves? Can I actually build a whole movement and a business out of this model that I have shared in a book. Hmm. So hmm. that for me was dreaming big and dreaming big, not in a, you know, a, I would say in the way of your contribution, hmm. in some way that utilizes your gifts and helps you to be the best version of yourself. And everybody's big dream can be totally different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say the lesson I've learned is not to hold back. Hmm. not to shrink worrying about what will happen. Hmm. Uh, I took a long time to write the first book. It was always a dream for me as a child to write a book, but it came out only when I was in my late 30s because hmm. of a lot of fear and inhibitions and everything. Say, yeah, don't hold back. Dream big and uh, let your dream be bigger than your fears. Great, great. great. And that's work in progress. Yeah, it always is, I'm sure. It always is. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Continue to live. Yes, it will always be. So any piece of advice for young girls who are on the threshold of their personal, professional lives and are just kind of, you know, venturing out? Anything that you would like to tell them, advise them on? I would say pretty much the same things. Yeah. But, yeah, um, I, I, would for, yeah I, I would say, especially for young women, and I feel this strongly because I have a daughter who's just stepping out into the working uh, working world, hmm. I, I would say the first thing is don't underestimate yourself and the contributions that you can make. Hmm. Right? Uh, so therefore, let your voice be heard. And, you know, young women by virtue of being young and, and by virtue of being women are often expected and they be often decide to be invisible and unheard. Hmm. I would say, I would just say, don't underestimate yourself. Let your presence be felt. Let your voice be heard. Hmm. You are smarter, better, kinder, and more gorgeous and more powerful than you think you are. So hmm. just let your light shine and do whatever it takes, you know, to be fully who you are. Hmm. Hmm. So that's what I say. You do you, but you do the best version of you. And don't let the world and what others expect of you tell you what to do, hold you back from being your fully gorgeous, authentic, powerful self. Great, great. That's absolutely wonderful. So tell me, Nirupa, you've been a successful woman. You've like, okay, you were a banker, author, all of these things. So when you go out there, maybe a social gathering or otherwise professionally, when you meet people, and here I'm talking of both men and women, how does the world react to a woman who's done well for herself? 
who's made a name for herself, who's been successful in whatever she's doing. And if I were to uh, generalize this across not just me, but other women, I think mixed reactions. Yeah. Uh, admiration, awe, suspicion, confusion, <laughs> all of that. And yes. I often find myself also reacting the same way to, you know, successful women and was like, my God, she's a CEO and she has two small kids and she's a marathoner and she does this. So I actually feel a lot of awe and admiration. Hmm. Uh, but there are also a lot of people who feel confusion. I'm sure there's something which is given, right? I'm sure she is, I mean, if she's so great, I'm sure she's not such a great, uh, she, if she's so great in finance, I'm sure she's not such a great cook. Or if she's, uh, you know, I'm sure if she's such a great entrepreneur, she can't be a good mother. So there is some confusion as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm happy to say today, I think uh, the world is more accepting yeah. uh, of, uh, successful women and yeah. as women own our success as we define our own definition of success mm -hmm. the world is going to respect that mm -hmm. and yes maybe there are some people who will feel intimidated there will be some people who feel envious there will be some people uh, who might be put off but I think that's a minority yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a woman who sees herself as successful gets respect from the world. Yeah. And yeah. It, whatever you're doing, I think you, you should first see yourself as successful and own that success. Then the world sees you as successful, uh, somebody who will be respected, somebody who will be admired and somebody who is a source of inspiration. And I think when I see women who I consider successful, and it could be just the way a woman carries herself and her aura and her personality, hmm. I, I think I have deep admiration and awe. I think for me, the word, the word, right word is really awe. Like it's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I remember the title of a book which I really enjoyed. It's, it's called, I don't know how she does it. <laughs> and it's also how people react like, how does she do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in a way I think successful women and I said again whatever the definition of, of success hmm. um, become a source of inspiration to everyone not just young girls yeah, but for the world and like they say you know you have to teach people how to treat you so if you are yes. comfortable in your skin if you are happy being the way you are and yes. you know satisfied with the life then obviously other people will also treat you accordingly if you have doubts in your mind and you're not sure then obviously that gets reflected okay absolutely and as i said it's not just with women it's with men there are a lot of women absolutely i coach a lot of men and they're not really the confident uh you know person that the world thinks they are we all yeah. have our insecurities and fears and uh i might present as a successful woman it doesn't mean i don't have my fears insecurities moment of self-doubt and everything but really as a as a bigger picture uh, i think it's important to be comfortable be confident and see yourself as successful yeah true so tell me, we've, maybe you have also, I have uh, grown up uh, hearing this, that a woman is a woman's worst enemy. What do you have to say to this? 
I mean, you agree or you don't agree is one thing. The other thing is, why is this said so often? Why is this said? So, you know, in fact, in my book, Powerful, I talk about this. In fact, it is a strategy I call divide. Yes. And which is what the patriarchal system does is when you want uh, to keep people from power, when you want to keep a group of people from power, hmm. the easiest thing to, for you to do is to make them fight amongst themselves, like, which is what the British did with colonialism, right? Yeah. So you make all of these Indian kings fight against themselves or you make the village, different religions fight amongst themselves, then they are not going to challenge uh, the real system or, you know, people who are in power. Yeah. Right? So I, I see this also happening with women. Patriarchy as a system makes women uncomfortable with each other, makes mm -hmm. them competitors for the power center who is usually the man. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's 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 the way the system has been designed. And that's why we say it. Because a lot of the laws and norms of patriarchy are enforced by women and women. It's the mm. mothers who tell their daughters, sit like this, don't do that, don't yeah, go out yeah. after dark, don't whatever, don't laugh like this, don't talk to boys. And then the mothers-in-law enforce it on their daughters-in-law. You shouldn't go to work, you should stay here. So we become enforcers of the patriarchy because that is what has kept us safe mm. all along. I like with what the system or what the men want makes me a part of the system because yes. if I'm not part of the system then I'm a rebel I'm an outcast then I become completely powerless so when I was reading and researching I found this fascinating that you know women uh, do judge other women women turn on other women out of a deep sense of insecurity and the fear that they will their whatever little power they have will be taken away yeah. from them so it's unfortunate, but it has happened. And I have seen in every workshop that I do when I ask women, do you think women judge each other more? Mm -hmm. Every time the answer is yes. We do tend to judge each other because of these impossibly high standards that have been imposed on women. And that's the second strategy I call decorate, which is you have to be amazing uh, cook. You have to be uh, looking gorgeous. At the same time, you have to please your in-laws. Yet you have to be good at work. One of the ways we make ourselves feel better is by looking at people who we think don't do so well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I know, I know she's got a great career, but see, she can't cook as well as uh, I do. Or I'm a much better mother than her, right? So because we haven't been allowed to channelize our personal power, hmm. these judgments, these rivalries do happen. Yeah. But I don't truly believe that a woman is a woman's worst enemy. Mm. If at all my worst enemy enemy will be myself in that mm. case, yes, I have a woman. Yeah. But these days I see amazing stories of support, of sisterhood, of community, of women coming together mm. and supporting each other. I think uh, when we take back our power, when we claim our power, we do it through this support system. Yes, I agree. So I agree. I, I'm seeing a lot of shift in this thinking that a woman is a woman's worst enemy. There is a thing, you know, there's actually a syndrome called the Queen Bee Syndrome where a woman yeah. in power doesn't want other women to reach the same status of power because usually only one woman is allowed to be powerful, right? You can mm. have only one woman in the management committee. Oh, mm. great, we've got one woman leader here. So then you become insecure and say, hey, I might be replaced with another woman leader. 
Why can't there be two women leaders? Why can't you have an entire leadership team filled with women? Hmm. So I think, and that that can happen only when we support, encourage, and inspire each other. Uh, In fact, a lot of work we do at GLOW is really around women supporting women. The Hmm. mentoring programs that we do. So at My Daughter's Precious, we have senior women like Hmm. you and me come mm. forward as mentors for younger girls from underserved areas. And that's the only reason the program is successful is because women are supporting women. Mm. We run mentorship programs in organizations where senior women are attached to junior women and they mentor them. Mm. That's proven to be immensely useful. All communities that I'm a part, part of, where, which is all women communities where we can collaborate and share Pretty much like the old boys network that used to exist, right? Uh-huh. That all these clubs are only for men. So yeah. now as we are taking back, you know, as we are forming our own communities and, you know, supporting each other, mm-hmm. I don't think it's true any longer. There is an element of it that exists still, just as you say, men are very competitive and, you know, alpha males want to be uh, the alpha male in that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, women have held each other back, but I think that's changing a lot now and very happy to see the positive changes yeah i agree actually with this so finally nirupama can a woman have it all i will say read my article on that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wrote an article called can we really have it all Hmm. so i think the first first thing is to define what is your all Yes, yes, absolutely. Do we mean home and family? Do we mean home family, uh, being rich and being able to take vacations? What is it that you mean by all, hmm. right? And finding our own definition of all. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody can have it all, as in all, as in everything. Even men, I know a lot of men who say, I really wish I could spend more time um, with my family. I wish I could bond with my children, but I'm on this career track which takes 16 hours out of me Hmm. so I think for you to anybody to have it all and especially for women with all the constraints that uh, we have faced it's important to define what your all is like I've said I may not have it all all in somebody else's eyes Hmm. right so but I have to define what are really important where do I want to spend my energy and time Hmm. and if I if my actions match my aspirations, I can have it all. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I can I can have a thriving career. I can have good relationships. I can be a good you know, mother in whatever way I think I can be a good mother. Uh, I can contribute. Uh, I, I have agency to create my life the way I want to. Then I think everybody can have it all. Yes. Uh, we shouldn't use somebody else's standard of what that ideal all looks like. Yes. Right? That's so true. That's yeah, true. can a woman be a CEO and a good mother? That may not necessarily be the benchmark of all. Yeah. And for yeah. somebody yeah. else, we could choose very well that I don't want to be in this particular space. For mm. me, my all is really having some level of financial independence and having healthy nurturing relationships with my family. And that is my all. And I, I will... I will make sure my efforts are in that direction to have that all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think having that, again, I'll go back to having that clarity and then prioritizing can help each of us to have our all, whatever that all looks like. As I say, you know, uh, our life might be full, 
but we have to look at is it fulfilling so wow, that's that's actually so true so true yes it has to be fulfilling it's not full it's not about being full yes so thank you nirupama it was indeed extremely rewarding and enriching listening to you and your views about so many things related to women and i think more and more women we need more and more women like you to come out there use their privilege use all the you know everything that has the universe has given them to the advantage of other women because like you said there are so many who still are struggling still are facing so many challenges so you know anything that any one of us can do would be a great help so thank you thank you really for being here thank you sanita thank you for having me and uh, thank you for being a trailblazer and doing this as well thank yes. you thank Pleasure. you thank you for listening to this podcast tune in every thursday for some more inspiring conversations with women trailblazers if you like the show follow us and you could leave a review to help us get better You could even get in touch with us on any one of our social media handles.